All right, well, good morning. My name is Cooper. I'm one of the members here at Richtop Church. I want to uh, welcome you. Um, I'm hoping that each of you had a good Thanksgiving this week with friends or family or wherever you um, have been. Um, I'm excited to be hanging the greens after the service. Um, I echo the sentiments of Noah being excited about Christmas. Um, I usually start the Christmas music like two weeks before Thanksgiving, so I think I have you beat, um, or maybe on a day in June if, it, if I'm having that kind of a day, but um, yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm excited to be here. Um, again, my name is Cooper, one of the members here at Richtop Church. I've been in Austin uh, for two years now. I moved to Austin from Massachusetts about two years ago, um, and I think if I could choose a word to describe the last two years of my life, that word would be weakness. Uh, it was two years ago that I graduated from college. I moved um, from Massachusetts, where I grew up, here to Austin, Texas. Um, and that is not the word that I would have hoped would have described my first two years out of college. Um, but that word is, is, is there. And so coming out of college just through various kind of circumstances and experiences has really felt like God bringing me right kind of face-to-face with my own weaknesses for the first time, really with no distractions. And so before, I was sort of trying to medicate, trying to avoid uh, circumstances that would make me feel weak, uh, seeking only those uh, opportunities that would make me feel strong, avoiding those that would make me feel weak or exposed or vulnerable. Um, And I, I started to realize that this is not the way of the Christian life. And I think many of you uh, in this room have a similar, similar story that we want to go from strength to strength, um, always looking wise and powerful in the eyes of others. But we, as we look at our Bibles, we realize that is actually antithetical to the spiritual life, the Christian spiritual life. The path that God has for us is not from strength to strength. And often he asks us to take steps in faith in the midst of pain and fear and weakness and that those are the marks of a truly spiritual life. And so the question today that I want to consider with you and think with you about is, how do you and I access spiritual power and spiritual wisdom? And so if you have your Bibles, you can open with me to 1 Corinthians 2. You may already be there as we've read um, the text. And we'll be looking at verses 1 through 11. Uh, I think this will be up on your screen that... um, We'll be looking at spiritual power, so that's verses 1 through 5, and spiritual wisdom, that's verses 6 through 11. We're working our way through the Apostles' Creed, and you heard from Christian Hogan a great sermon last week on the Ascension from Acts 1. I would encourage you, if you missed that, you can go back and listen on on SoundCloud at Ridgetop Church. And this week, we're looking at that that very next sentence in the Creed, I believe in the Holy Spirit. So that's that's where we are in the Apostles' Creed. And so many things can be said about the Holy Spirit, um, but we're going to look at spiritual power and spiritual wisdom today. So first, spiritual power. So look look there at verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, 
but in the power of God. So Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. This is a church that he planted. He spent a year and a half uh, with them there. We can read about this in Acts chapter 18. And Paul has a, a tumultuous, kind of complicated relationship with the church there in Corinth. Frequently he's writing to them, appealing to them to be unified, to maintain holiness. Uh, he, so he wrote First and Second Corinthians. There's two other letters he wrote to them uh, kind of along these similar lines. We know that this church is deeply divided, um, and it leads Paul in chapter um, 1 to write, it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or Peter, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And so it seems that in Paul's absence, as he's writing to them from Ephesus, the church in Corinth is sort of creating these personality cults and dividing over which, which leader to follow. Basically, who should we follow? Paul, Apollos, Cephas, Peter, or Christ? And they're focusing way too much on the preacher's Rather than the message itself, they are drawn to impressive speech. We know, for example, that Apollos was a great communicator, excellent speaker. We know that Corinth was sort of this oratory culture where lots of ideas are being shared verbally, and so they would have valued these kinds of things and looked to these kind of things. Um, who is the um, best speaker? So that's Paul's concern here, that is that the Corinthians would be distracted away from the message that was the very reason for his visit to them in the first place. There's no evidence that there were any theological differences in the messaging of these individuals. And so what, the, what it really comes down to is who's the best speaker? Who communicates the best? Who has the most eloquent words of wisdom? And, and then we come to two, in verses one through two, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So we, we notice immediately that Paul came to them to preach or proclaim to them the testimony of God and not with lofty speech or wisdom. So Paul has that word decided. He's made up his mind ahead of time to know nothing uh, but the, the central message which he's focusing on. And, um, and not with lofty speech or wisdom, putting all that away, anything that might distract from the main point, because he knows this is the Corinthians, this is their weak spot, this is how they're prone to missing the point. Um, and so what is the, what's the message? What's so important that Paul has laid aside everything that might distract from it? Well, if we look there in verse 2, it's Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so I think in this text, that's the message of the gospel in short form uh, for Paul here. And that's why I think he speaks in the, first, in the third person in chapter 1, was Paul crucified for you? So he's making it clear that it's not about Paul or Apollos or Cephas or even just the person of Jesus. It's about the one who was crucified for them. It's about the message of Jesus and his death by crucifixion. We as Christians understand that God made us in his image, that he made us to be good, and we decided to rebel against God. We, wanted to do, we decided to do what we wanted to do and not what he wanted us to do. And, and that's a problem because God really is good, and so he cannot 
leave sin unpunished. He cannot dwell with people that are living in sin. And so God sent his own son, Jesus of Nazareth, who is fully God and fully man, to live a perfect, sinless life. That's the life that we should have lived. And die a death on the cross. That's the death that we deserve to die. He ascended, he rose from the dead on the third day. Um, God raised him on the third day, accepted the sacrifice, and he ascended into heaven where he is seated at the right hand of God, signifying that this work of salvation is, has been completed. Our primary need is to be reconciled to God through this gospel. That's what we most need. What we most need is not to be liked or respected by other people, to be wealthy, to have money, to have that career that we always wanted to have, achieve that academic title that we always have been striving towards, date or marry that person that we have always wanted to. Our primary need is to have our sins forgiven and to be reconciled to God. And that's what Paul knows that the Corinthians needed, and that's what we most need today. And so the only way that that need is met is Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's, um, that's what Paul is so concerned about, just foregrounding that message for the Corinthians, making himself vulnerable, um, even to threat of physical death, to get this gospel to them. There's a uh, story in Luke chapter 5 where Jesus is teaching in a, in a house, and it's very crowded. There's some of the Pharisees and the um, um, elders are there, and a, there's a group of guys that bring their friends who is paralyzed to him. They're trying to get him into the house. They're trying to put him down in front of Jesus, uh, but they can't get to him because the house is too crowded. And so they go up on the roof, and they drop their friend through a, a hole in the roof, a hole in the tiles. Um, and it's this moment where this man that's paralyzed is dropped in front of Jesus, and you, everyone's looking at him expecting this great miracle to happen. Immediately, he's going to be healed, of course, um, and he looks at him and he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. And so this was obviously very strange to the people around that he would say this in the face of obvious physical need. And then he, of course, uh, heals him of uh, his paralysis after this. But Jesus is concerned primarily at first about the man's sins. That Jesus in his wisdom knows that our most desperate need is that our sins be forgiven. Now we notice that it's not just the person of Jesus that's in view here for Paul, it's Jesus and his work. That is what he came to do. He came to die a death on the cross for us. And so maybe you've encountered people like this that uh, they seem like Christians. Maybe they even, they like to speak a lot about the person of Jesus Maybe they can kind of derive their own kind of meaning from his life, especially in our culture. People love to talk about Jesus all the time because they can have all sorts of opinions about who he was. And then you steer the conversation to the crucifixion. Jesus dying a death for sinners on the cross to take the punishment for our sin. Christ crucified, and they sort of glaze over. Or maybe they get agitated with you. They get frustrated because that means once you get to the crucifixion of Christ, that's Christ and his work, we have to get very specific about sin, its consequences, our status with a holy God, and they don't want to go there. But if we know, we know that if it's not Christ crucified, it's not the gospel. The crucifixion is the heart of the gospel. 
And so that's why Paul didn't want to put any kind of barrier in the way of this message for the Corinthians. This is out of love for them that he's made himself vulnerable to get the gospel to them. So we see that Paul reminds them of the content of his message, and um, then he goes on to remind, to remind them of his bodily presence. Uh, we read in 3 through 5, um, I, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So not only was Paul's speech unimpressive during his church planting visit there, but his bodily presence was such that he was weak, he was afraid, he says he was trembling, and we know that he was met with fierce opposition from the Jews there. And so notice that Paul says he came to them in verse 1, and he was with them in verse 3. Came to them and was with them. In the heart of ministry for Paul, he prefers to be with people, uh, writing letters only out of necessity, but preferring to make himself available to them physically. Even in that way, he's embodying the gospel for us here, making himself, coming to them, and then remaining with them for such a, a long duration of time in vulnerability. And so Paul is telling him his speech was weak, his temperament was weak, and that is the location of the spiritual power in this text. For Paul, that's where the true spiritual power was demonstrated in Paul's ministry. So notice the location, meaning kind of with the various ends, that word I-N in this section 1 through 5. So not in lofty speech or wisdom or eloquent words of wisdom, but yes in weakness, fear, trembling in verse 3, demonstration. That's in verse 3. And then demonstration of the Spirit and of power in verse 4. So what is the location of the spiritual power here? That it's in Paul's weakness in declaring the gospel to the Corinthians. And then we have our purpose clause in verse 5. So that, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he's picking up a a line of sort of reasoning that he began in chapter 1, verse 17, that when the cross is preached with words of eloquent wisdom, it's emptied of its power. So we're seeing this kind of inverse relationship between man's power and spiritual power. So the very nature of sin is that humans exalt themselves to the place of God in our our pride. Um, But here we see Paul going through his weakness into spiritual power. So the power of man in in his own strength and spiritual power, it's like, I don't know if you've ever tried to like put two magnets together. They just don't go together. They they can't. Um, And James 4, 6 tells us that God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. Jesus in the Beatitudes in his teaching in Matthew 5 uh, tells us, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So where is it that Paul demonstrates spiritual power? It's in weakness. It's when he's afraid, when he's trembling, when he's moved towards people with the gospel, despite those weaknesses, removing every barrier to their belief in the gospel, even when it means making himself vulnerable. And so do you feel weak 
today? What trial are you going through right now that you, you feel like might just be the end of you? What, is the weakness, what weaknesses are you feeling right now? I think we can be encouraged that this is the very place that God finds you in a powerful way, that he uses your weakness and your suffering to, and, and your fear to cleanse you from relying on yourself in things in this world and causes you to cling to the cross of Christ in the gospel. That, this is loving for him to do it this way, for him, him to, as a loving father, to discipline his children, making us feel weak and afraid and vulnerable, and that, that pushes us deeper into gospel grace. And so we notice that God doesn't take away these weaknesses or fears for Paul. As he commissions him, he doesn't take them away, but makes him, number one, acknowledge them, and number two, go through them into spiritual power. Acknowledge them and go through them. We notice that without them, the spiritual power cannot even be accessed. I've realized with, without um, my struggle, I've, I've kind of realized this reality that without feeling weakness, without feeling afraid, without going through um, some of the struggles in my life, I may have never turned to God in faith. Um, and so it's in his love that he, he, he puts us through these trials um, to draw us nearer to himself. So many times I'm praying about my weakness or the weakness of others. I'm just praying, God, please just take it away. Just remove it. And I think we can be encouraged here that here's a man that experienced amazing spiritual power, and it was in his weakness. Sometimes God does remove our weaknesses, but, and we praise him for that, but often he gives us just more grace to endure them. And the reason for them is that we would not rely on ourselves, but on power from him. Maybe in the more immediate context of the text, you feel weak in your evangelism. Maybe you're afraid to share the gospel. You don't feel like you're smart enough, that you know enough to explain it to people. You don't have the right words. You're afraid of persecution from other people. I think Paul felt, felt the same way. Um, and friends, your, your weakness does not disqualify you from experiencing spiritual power. Your weakness is the doorway to spiritual power in your life. It's not a speed bump on the way. It's the catalyst for the spiritual power, the location of it. When you're at the end of yourself and you trust in Christ to give you strength, that's the beginning of spiritual power. And so my hope is that as you read at least verses one through five, you just feel freedom. The freedom of realizing that our lives are not about us. That our work is not about us. Our family lives are not about us. Uh, our, our sports, our ministry, our school. If we are in Christ, we are truly spiritual people. And we are all about the gospel. Keeping it central and making it clear in our lives. Christ crucified. And then the Holy Spirit comes in a powerful way. We, uh, Paul writes to the, first, the church in 1 Thessalonians 1, we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. The Holy Spirit will always point to and exalt the work of Christ on the cross in the gospel where it is being proclaimed 
And so if you think about it, Paul is giving us here a kind of biblical model for what spiritual power looks like. What's the mechanism of spiritual power when it comes on us? Some of you have come out of churches that would say that they're seeking manifestations of the, the Holy Spirit more directly, trying to directly cultivate the Holy Spirit, maybe using language saying that he's sort of in the air, he's kind of in the atmosphere, he's present um, among the church um, in kind of a direct way. Uh, I think what we see here is that it's much more indirect for, for Paul in his ministry. Um, that his preaching, in, in, kind of along the way of Paul's preaching of the gospel, he backs into spiritual power because the Holy Spirit is, is basically saying, okay, the gospel is being preached here. I'm going to show up in a big way and really emphasize what's happening here. And so if we think about it, why did Paul go to Corinth? It was not to directly seek the Holy Spirit or spiritual power. He tells us in verse, uh, in chapter 1, 17, Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom. So we, we know that he went to Corinth to preach the gospel. And then along the way, he sort of backs into this spiritual power. He picks it up um, in his endeavor to get the gospel to his friends. Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in the 1700s in Northampton, Massachusetts. That's not 10 minutes from where I grew up in Amherst, Massachusetts. And that's where the first revivals of the first Great Awakening broke out in the churches there that he oversaw. And Richard Lovelace describes this in his book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, as Edwards is sort of reflecting on the spiritual renewal that took place there as sort of remarkable outpouring of the Holy Spirit was taking place the gospel was being faithfully preached by Edwards and others. And Edwards describes the people there that became intensely convicted of their sin and need for the righteousness of Christ. And that, and now I'm quoting, Edwards stressed, this might be on the screen, yep. Edwards stressed that the core of the awakening was not an emotional experience, but a spirit-given apprehension of the reality of God, which purged the heart and led inevitably to a meek and lamb-like spirit and an outflow of good works. So he, said, he writes there, it's not, an, it's not necessarily an emotional experience. It certainly can be, and the Holy Spirit certainly gives us emotions. That's not the primary element here uh, in, in the First Great Awakening, and not in this text, that um, rather the Spirit showing them the reality of God and ca causing humility in the convert. And that is nothing that the world cares about or is impressed by. That looks pretty ordinary. It looks like ordinary people hearing uh, God's word preached and becoming Christians, becoming humble Christians. Um, and that's, I think, a more, a more normative demonstration of spiritual power. That seems to be the biblical model, people becoming uh, converted, becoming humble like lambs as they encounter the realities of God um, as the gospel is preached. Okay, so we've talked about spiritual power, and what about spiritual wisdom? If you look there at verses 6 through 11, yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, 
For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So Paul is saying that um, although we make no effort to dress up the message of the cross with eloquent speech or wisdom, we are imparting a kind of wisdom. But he says in in verse 6 that it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And he compares and contrasts this wisdom with various um, wisdoms of this age, which I think uh, is part of what he means by the wisdom of men in verse 5 as well. And so the nature of this wisdom of men or of the rulers of the age is just that. It, it is of this age only. And that those rulers subscribing to the wisdom are doomed to pass away along with their wisdom. And so there's two kinds of wisdoms that are kind of at play here. There's man's wisdom, which is of this age, and there's the wisdom of God, which was decreed before the ages by God. There will be other ages. There will be other wisdoms. But the wisdom of, the, of God, the secret hidden wisdom of God, decreed before the ages will never pass away. And so what's the wisdom? What's the wisdom of, Paul, of God that Paul is referring to? Well, it's interesting that your, your Bible footnote might tell you that the word testimony in verse 1 can also be, uh, is in some manuscripts it shows as mystery or secret um, of God. So that's, we know that that testimony of God proclaimed in verse 1 was the gospel, it was Christ crucified. And so now here we have this language of the secret and hidden uh, wisdom of God. And it was decreed before the ages for our glory in verse 7. And then as it is written in verse 9, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. And so that kind of confirms it for us that the wisdom of God decreed before the ages is indeed his divine plan of salvation for his people finally realized in Christ. And we notice the tragic reality of the people that carried out the crucifixion of Jesus In verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So they did not understand the ancient wisdom of God that encompassed their own faulty wisdom. If they knew the ancient wisdom, they would not have killed Jesus, but they didn't. And in so doing, they became actors in it, actors in the divine plan. That's the sovereignty of God in the salvation of his people that he would use sinful actors to carry it out. They're following their own wisdom. And there's an ancient decreed before the ages of of time, hidden wisdom of God that's at play behind it, behind their own faulty wisdom. And so not only is the testimony of Christ not in accordance with worldly wisdom, but it it was actually according to this wisdom that Christ himself was put to death. And so the wisdom of the world looks at Jesus, sort of looks at the cross, and says that is both unimpressive, unnecessary, and offensive. 
Jesus was crucified according to the wisdom of sinful humanity. And so Paul is almost saying, what good is the, this wisdom that you seek if according to it your Savior was killed? If, when we look at um, chapter 1, verse 20 through 21, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. And so that's telling us that um, Christ cannot be known according to that same wisdom by which he was put to death. This is clear to us that, and and so it, it pleases God through the foolishness of the cross to save his people out of the world. So if we think about it, if saving knowledge of God was, if the gospel was attainable by having enough worldly wisdom, the most intellectual among us would know God in an intimate way through the gospel. And of course, we know that they don't. Um, In that case, every professor at the University of Texas who is claiming to have achieved a certain intellectual status, they would all know the gospel because they have enough uh, brains to comprehend it. And of course, we know that that's not true. Um, and that the most, the people that consider themselves the most intellectual, by and large, they have no knowledge of God in the gospel. And so it pleases God to make foolish the wisdom of the world with the weakness and the foolishness of the cross. And so do you see in this chapter how God is just flipping things on their head? Power in weakness, wisdom in foolishness, Um, We're going to start thinking about this at Christmas, that God would become a man as a little baby and be born in very unimpressive circumstances to humans that were just middle-class Jews. And um, in order to condescend to us and save us from our sins, that's a weak message. That's a foolish message. It It does not compute with the wisdom of the world, and it pleases God to do it that way. It pleases him to do it that way. We think of the words of Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty five. I thank you, Father, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. We think of Peter in Mark 8. Jesus has just got done explaining basically the secret wisdom to his disciples that he, hey guys, we're going up to Jerusalem. I'm going to be killed by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And so then Jesus rebukes Peter in return, and what does he say? You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So according to Peter's wisdom of man, that caused him to think it was appropriate to hear Jesus foretell his death and resurrection, and take him, think it was necessary to take him aside and rebuke him. That's the the wisdom of men that we're, we're talking about here. And we, um, we have to kind of remain humble because we would have this same kind of thinking if it weren't for the intervention of the Holy Spirit. Um, but according to the wisdom of man and the things of man, Jesus need not die. And it misunderstands just how desperate the problem of sin really is. And it rejects the gospel. So the question, I think, for us is, if this wisdom is secret and hidden, how is it that we as Christians come to know about it? So how do I get in on this wisdom if it's hidden in the depths of God, decreed before the ages? How, can I, how do I access that? 
And so if we look there at, at verses 10 through 11, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. So I think uh, right here we see something of the, per- the, of the personhood of the Holy Spirit, uh, that we ascribe a personhood to him, and something of the nature of our faith. So you see the, the person of the Holy Spirit in, the, in this text doing two things, and that's searching and revealing the depths or the mind of God. So why do I say personhood? The, the Holy Spirit is God, separate in personhood from both Father and Son, but sharing in the essence of God as equally God as the Father and the Son. And that this is a very mysterious reality of kind of the relations in the Trinity, but I love that, that Paul makes it so simple for us to understand here that the Holy Spirit is God the same way that your spirit is you. And so you have a, a, a spirit within you that is at work in discerning your thoughts and kind of articulating them to the people around you. You have thoughts, like your thought life is happening, and you have a spirit that's kind of mysteriously coming alongside your thoughts, discerning them, helping you to explain them to people. And uh, that should not surprise us because we were made in God's image. So our spiritual kind of discerning of our own thoughts, it reflects that of, of God himself. And so, I mean, think as you're getting to know like a friend over a cup of coffee and you're hearing them talk to you, their spirit is basically discerning the thoughts that they're having and they're communicating them to you. And then your spirits are interacting in a, in a mysterious way. But that's all happening when you are interacting with a, a person that is both body and spirit. And, and it's that way because we reflect the image of God. And so God's spirit does the same thing. He is searching those things that are in the depths of God. And what is he finding? He's finding the gospel decreed for our glory, the plan for the fullness of time realized in Jesus Christ. The Spirit is searching that out in the mind of God and making it known to us. Um, I think this will be up on your screen, a couple of verses from Ephesians that might be familiar to you. In verse, uh, chapter 1, 8 through 10, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And then you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So the mystery is made known by the Spirit. And so the implication uh, here is that those of us in the room that are Christians, we must remember that the Holy Spirit is the one who opened our eyes to the beauty of the gospel, that searched it out in the depths of God, and then revealed it to us. So we, we were able to see it uh, when we were converted. Not because we were smart enough to understand it, but the Holy Spirit opened our eyes to it. And that it was not made known to men in other generations, but now it has been revealed to us by His Holy Spirit. And that just causes us to worship Him because we did nothing to deserve that. That He opened our eyes uh, through the Holy Spirit. And so we realize that the Holy Spirit is searching the depths of God, finding the gospel, the mystery of Christ, declaring that to us, applying it to us, and then that same Holy Spirit 
is involved in our own proclamation of the gospel, as we see for Paul, and as we declare it, and the person on the other end, as they discern it to be true for themselves, they have the Holy Spirit working in them as well. And every step of the way, there is spiritual intervention as we keep the gospel central and clear. He's there every step of the way in our Christian lives, in our evangelism. And so everything in that way is sort of spiritual. As we keep the gospel at the very center, center of our lives. And it's like Jesus told the disciples uh, when he was describing the ministry of the Holy Spirit to them in John 15, saying that he will testify of me. He will take what is, what is mine and declare it unto you. And so, uh, as I close, what, again, just kind of what weaknesses, what foolishness are you walking in with today? What are those barriers that you feel like, if I could just get past this one thing, then I could kind of get into uh, spiritual power. Maybe some of you are in the room right now, you're just exhausted. Maybe the week off uh, during Thanksgiving was just not enough. You feel tired or discouraged. Maybe you feel lonely or misunderstood, like you're an outsider. Maybe you're struggling with relational issues or feel crushed by fear or worry. Well, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 12, I will boast all the more gladly in my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So key in admitting our weakness is forsaking reliance on ourselves. And so I think it's when we stop trying to kind of protect ourselves and make sure our weaknesses don't get exposed. It's when we admit or acknowledge them, our weaknesses, and then go through our weakness into spiritual power. That's the pattern of the Christian life, acknowledging weakness and then going through it into spiritual power. If you don't remember anything else, I think that's, that's basically the, the most important point. And that's the pattern that is embedded in the gospel itself. When you begin to live out of weakness into spiritual power, your life takes the shape of the cross because it was at the cross where the weakness of God gave way to power for him and for us. 2 Corinthians 13, 4 says, he was, For he was crucified in weakness, but now lives by the power of God. And indeed, in, in chapter 1, the weakness of God is stronger than men. The cross is the central place where this happens. Spiritual power, being born out of weakness, out of foolishness. And it's the same for us in our Christian lives. This is what it means for Paul, as he says, that he, uh, we carry in our bodies the death of Jesus. That his life and ministry would become sort of cruciform, meaning that it would take the shape of the, the cross. And in that way, it would become a sort of theater of the gospel to those around him. So when you, when you acknowledge weakness and foolishness and go through it into spiritual power and spiritual wisdom, you're embodying the shape of the cross. Whoever would come after me, Jesus says in Mark 8, let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever would lose his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. And so that, that's Jesus in Mark 8, 
telling us to come through our weakness into power. It's Jesus saying, well, of course, if you would follow me, if you would want to follow me, you would go that very way that I am going through weakness, foolishness, into power. So that's our own death of self-denial into spiritual power. That's an ongoing struggle for me. I am wrestling through these things every day. This, it does not look um, perfect for me by any means. And there's many ways that we can talk about how to do this as we kind of keep the gospel central and be spiritual people. But that's the basic um, idea. And so if you're a Christian in the room today, be encouraged that our foolishness is the way to spiritual wisdom, our weakness is the way to spiritual power, acknowledge them, be honest about them, don't try to medicate them, go through them. Leave self-reliance behind and lean into your weakness this week in the workplace or the school, wherever you're going out into the world. If you're here today and you're not a Christian, you're not yet a Christian, you don't accomplish this by just trying really hard. The, the response to the gospel is to repent and turn away from sin and trust in the work that Christ has already done for you. It's done. It's as good as done. Just receive the forgiveness he purchased for you. Um, you can call out to God right now, and he will forgive you, um, and you, he will welcome you into relationship with him. And so I pray that um, each one of us would be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus this week. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you that you have done it this way, that you have chosen weak and foolish means to enter into relationship with us. I thank you that our faith does not rest in the wisdom of men or in the wisdom of the world, but um, in the power of the gospel. Thank you that you make us strong out of weakness. We have looked to you as our loving Father. We have seen uh, your son with the eyes of our hearts dying a death for our sins rising again um, and we cling to this gospel message going back to it each day for strength help us to do that this week as we enter back into our work our school i pray that we would be encouraged that our weaknesses don't disqualify us they're not speed bumps they are, um, they are the very location of your spiritual power. I pray that we would just abound in hope um, today. So we thank you for who you are. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the gospel. Uh, we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.